the way to become unstuck is to begin a consistent, I say that word day in and day out, time and time again, consistent practice of being conscious. Hi, I'm Vishen Lakiani, founder of Mind Valley, the school for human transformation. You're listening to the Mind Valley podcast, where we'll be bringing you the greatest teachers and thought leaders on the planet to discuss the world's most powerful ideas and personal growth for mind, body, spirit, and work. Our guest today, Nicole LaPera, her book is the number six book on Amazon at the time of this recording. The book is called How to Do the Work, and I want to strongly suggest that you check it out. Let me read out the subtitle of the book because I love the subtitle. Recognize your patterns, heal from your past, and create yourself, especially the line, create yourself. So Nicole LaPera is a phenomenon. She's all over the news right now. You'll read articles about her on, for example, Vice Magazine. She has 3.6 million followers on her Instagram, The Holistic Psychologist. You can also learn more about her from her website, which is yourholisticpsychologist.com. So The Holistic Psychologist on Instagram. That's the.holistic.psychologist. And her website is yourholisticpsychologist.com. And the book that we're going to be talking about is called How to Do the Work, Recognize Your Patents, Heal from Your Past, and Create Yourself. Nicole is a holistic psychologist. She believes in mental wellness for everyone. She received her traditional training, which she's really grateful for. She talks about this in her book at Cornell University at the New School of Social Research. But after years as a clinical psychologist, she became frustrated with the limitations of traditional psychotherapy and began to develop a unified philosophy on mental, physical, and spiritual well-being that empowers peoples with the tools to heal themselves. And how to do the work is really about getting out there and figuring out the tools that work for you, making this a habit, and slowly healing yourself and becoming the best version of you you can be. She is an incredible teacher, and we are so excited to have a live with us today. Nicole, welcome to Mind Valley. Thank you. I am truly honored to be spending time with all of you here today. Nicole, I want you to start a little bit with your story. I loved the opening chapters of your book when you spoke about your low points, but I'm curious to know for the audience here, what made you go into this field with such rigor and passion to create these models that you present in your book? I'm one of those people, Vision, that for as long as I can remember, I had that intuitive ping, I guess, if you will, to really understand other people. As long as I can remember, I was really fascinated with, you know, my peers at first, those that I saw similar to myself, and of course, those that I saw dissimilar to myself. So looking back now, I understand that that curiosity, that desire to understand the human was there for, like I said, as long as I can remember, I now refer to it as coming from that intuition, that deeper space. And of course, I was a very voracious reader. I loved books. So that translated to, you know, in adolescence, me picking up books about humans. And then, of course, entering in through high school and throughout college, actually learning the field of psychology. My intention being to not only increase my awareness of myself so that I can understand who I am, what my purpose here in this world life experience is, so I could also help my clients to do the same. And what I found because I was very curious. I did learn a lot. I learned all different ways of working with the human condition, with psychology, both within my training programs and outside. I was all about certificates and learning and, you know, understanding the most integrative toolkit. 
But what I found, Vision, is several years into my practice, I was feeling just as disempowered as my clients. I was watching and now working with humans week after week that were struggling to create and or maintain change. Struggles I saw in myself. So again, coming from that really curious place, I first sought to understand why. Why are we all so stuck? How do we become unstuck? And that really shifted my path a bit. And I began to walk into the direction of speaking about a holistic model of wellness as I now do and as I now offer, of course, in this book. I love the holistic model. So there's this line in your book, and I'm quoting you here. You said, I discovered that our genes are not destiny and that in order to change, we have to become consciously aware of our thought patterns and habits, which have been shaped by the people we care for and have been cared for the most. Tell us about that. What do you mean by thought patterns and habits? And how are these shaped by the people we care for and the people who we've been cared by? What I saw week after week was what I call increasing amounts of insight, you know, session upon session where I would work with humans to understand habits and patterns that weren't serving that particular person. And lo and behold, the following week after week, these humans would come into session and report, again, that inability to use that insight or to translate that insight into action. To, as I say, create the bridge between I now know better, let me begin to create change or to do things differently, not necessarily better. And what I began to realize is the reason why we're not able to build that bridge to create change, which can result in increasing amounts of disempowerment. For some of us, we entertain narratives of brokenness. Maybe something is wrong with me that I can't actually break these patterns. Maybe they're, again, embedded in my genetics, embedded in the personality. All of my family behaves this way. Why can't I change? Maybe it's just who I am. What I now realize is it's not who we are. So many of us have dropped into that bridge can't be built because when we're going about our day, a lot of listeners probably have heard of this concept. We are living from our autopilot. And what our autopilot is, it's all of that subconscious patterning, all of the habits that for many of us, we began forming in childhood in environments where we didn't have perhaps tools and resources available to us to cope any other way. Unfortunately, that becomes our way of being. So insight happens when we're actually in a different part of our mind, when we're in the conscious place, when we can understand past behaviors that no longer serve us and even create plans of action to do something different in the future. Yet to actually create that change, we have to learn how to shift out of that autopilot. Because again, we're repeating stuck patterns because we're living from that unconscious so space. You speak a lot about how you came to understand conscious, becoming conscious. You mentioned earlier when we are at that conscious place and we can see our patterns. Let's first talk about what is a pattern. In the book, you talk about everything from childhood, meanings that we take on, to epigenetics. But if you could define for us, what is a pattern and how do we become conscious or aware of this pattern so we can attempt to change it in the first place? Patterns are essentially repetitions. For some of us, they begin our thoughts. If you begin to become an observer, if you tune in to the endless chatter that we all have running through our minds on any given day, many of us come to realize that we're very patterned. We tell ourselves the same stories about ourselves, our relationships, our place in the world, really endless narratives. We also become very patterned and repetitive. I guess that's the word I want to offer here, repetitive, in our behaviors, in the way we care for ourselves in day in and day out. We become very repetitive in the emotions that we cycle through or we're stuck in. So to become conscious, what I discovered, Vision, when I tuned into this practice of consciousness, I came to realize how unconscious I was. For me, that evidenced itself in disconnection. 
I never really felt connected to my body. I never really understood when I was hungry or full or what food made me feel, you know, energetic and cognitively clear. I never was connected to my body emotionally. If I wasn't feeling stressed, I wasn't feeling much of anything. I had a lot of flatness. So disconnection a lot of times is a sign that we're not living consciously because when we're conscious, we are able to tune into our body's cues. We're all living in a physical body. We all have an emotional system, energies or hormones that create change in our body sensations. So if you're listening and you're not aware of the body you're living in, of the emotions that you have, if you just feel a general state of disconnection, chances are you're living through repetitive patterns that were likely created in your past. So the pathway out, as I talk about the whole beginning of the book, is talking about rebuilding this foundation of consciousness, learning. It is an action. It is a practice. We actually have to fire up our brain in a new way. For many of us, we have not done this to learn how to tune in to our conscious moments, to our physical bodies, and to our emotions that so many of us have been slipped and disconnected from. So I'd love to ask you this question because among so many different teachers in Mind Valley, I hear different theories of where patterns come from, right? There are teachers like Marie Diamond who speak about karmic healing, that you can have patterns from past lives. I would wonder on your belief on that. And then I've heard of teachers like Christy Marie Sheldon who talk about childhood patterns that we take on before the age of nine. We have teachers like Marissa Peer who again talk about childhood patterns, but also patterns that we take on because of trauma, traumatic situations. I'm curious to know your take on where these patterns are ultimately coming from. I believe these patterns are transmitted in all of those ways. You know, we have, or so I believe we have, that undescribable essence, whether or not we want to apply the label of soul or spiritual, something that I know a lot of us feel a bit is woo-woo. I believe that we all have that uniqueness that is each of us, that one might say, right, is transferred through time, our soul, this essence. Again, we are very impacted by the environments, the family structures we're born into, the communities with all of, again, the belief systems that impact. So yes, there is, you know, kind of the family patterning, the adaptations that we've had to live as a result of those very real environments that we were born into. So I agree with all of those theorists that we, you know, come by our patterning through the generations and it really does map onto our physiology. This is why it gets a little bit chicken in the egg because by the time we're born, we are born into a body that is showing physiological changes, some of us at least, based on dysregulations that were contained in our mother's body. So I use my example very commonly because I was born to a mother who hurt stress. She was locked in a cycle of stress, unable to really balance it. And she was, you know, always kind of locked in that stress mode. And so probably likely physiological changes, right, that impacted her body were impacting my body in utero. So a lot of times when we come out, it is really confusing. Like I shared a lot of the habits and patterns I saw in myself, I saw in the caregivers around me. So it was hard to differentiate how much of this was my genetics and how much of this was the fact that I was imprinted from utero forward from these environments, by these environments. So I'm curious about this in your book. And to be honest, I, I was confused by it. You mentioned epigenetics and the power of epigenetics. I'd love for you to talk a little bit about epigenetics because I think it's one of the most interesting ways we take on pattern. But you also mentioned that one of the things I've realized after conducting well over a thousand interviews with the world's greatest thought leaders in everything from entrepreneurship to spirituality, to health and wellness, to relationship, is that life is enormous 
And there are so many ways we can make our life better and better in every way, in every single day. If you're successful in just one area of life, you might just suck in another. I've known billionaires whose romantic lives were in shambles. I've known incredibly emotionally intelligent people who just couldn't make money. And that's totally fine. It doesn't matter where you are. Life doesn't have to stay the same forever. You're not cursed or destined to be miserable or unlucky in love or struggling to make ends meet. You were just never thought how to have it all, how to do things differently, how to master the human experience from a mind, body, and soul perspective. This is where Mind Valley membership comes in. When you become a Mind Valley member, you are coached by the greatest teachers in the world. You get to live a life beyond your wildest dreams and learn the best systems, protocols, methods, step by step by step in just 20 minutes a day to get there. You become the man or woman that you've always aspired to be. And this happens in the easiest, most effective way because of the Mind Valley transformational model. Go to mindvalley.com forward slash now. Don't settle for ordinary. Don't settle for your life the way it is now. Aspire to step into your greatness. Our genetics don't matter, right? That ultimately we can become conscious of our own patterns and fix them. So I'm a little bit curious about how those two ideas come together. Yeah, there's an interaction. Genetics matter environment matters. The choices that we're making and how we're navigating our environment matters. So it's not one or the other, it's an interacting cycle. So we're each born, what epigenetic science provides. And for me, Vision, that was the first crack of light because up until that point, before I discovered the science of epigenetics, I, like most people in the field, was taught a science of genetic determinism, which really just means the genetics that you're born with at birth are set in stone and they will determine what medical or psychological conditions you get later in life. So you have no control in that model. So very understandably, a lot of us feel disempowered. I saw anxiety in my family structure. I imagine that that was my lot in life. I had that genetic chip. What we now know is yes, we all have genes we all you know, are born with genetic components, with DNA. However, again, it's our environments. It's the choices that were either made around us in the form of our caregivers, helping us to, to meet our own body's needs or our emotional needs. And then, of course, the decisions we begin to make in life, which are very much impacted by what was modeled to us early on. So the things we're going about doing, the lifestyle choices that we're making actually play a far greater role in whether or not our genes will express, will get that thing or repress. We won't develop that condition. So this allows us a bit of empowerment. It allows our choices, the choices that some of us are making day in and day out unbeknownst to us to actually begin to play a role, to give us some control back in our destiny. I see. I see. And let's talk about stuckness then. You mentioned earlier, we get stuck. And in your book, you speak of stuckness. How do we get unstuck? To be unstuck, we first want to develop a habit of consciousness. So to be able to see that repetitive habits and patterns that no longer serve us. We don't just want to see them, however. Probably listeners out there are like, yeah, I know the patterns that don't work. Every time this happens, I do this thing and I suffer some negative consequences as a result of it. This is where we have to translate that insight into action, meaning remaining conscious as life is happening around us, as our emotions right, are getting activated, especially in our relationships where a lot of us struggle with habits and patterns that don't serve us. So the way to become unstuck is to begin a consistent, I say that word day in and day out, time and time again, consistent practice 
of being conscious because it's in those pivotal moments, right? Where we want to learn a new tool to cope with my emotions, or maybe where I want to show up differently in a relationship that is no longer serving me. I have to learn how to maintain consciousness in those moments. So there's this beautiful story in your book about the girl who changed her life by drinking a glass of water every morning. And then the cascading changes that came from layering on habits to that. Would you tell that story? Because I think that's so impactful to everyone here listening. And by the way, Nicole, we have 607 people live with us right now. That's so incredible. Thank you all for listening, for joining us here today. So Allie, I talk about Allie a lot because Allie's story and Allie met my work on Instagram, where a lot of people do, based on a, a meme that I presented on a topic around this concept that I call self-betrayal. And essentially what self-betrayal is, is what many of us are living into adulthood, the repetition of habits and patterns that don't fully honor or serve our needs that have likely changed since childhood into adulthood, the needs of our physical body, our emotional body, our spiritual self. And what self-betrayal is, and this is really simply, I'm describing it, is living again from conditioned patterns that don't serve us and not showing up in service of our needs. So Allie, like many of us, right, has been operating from that conditioned self for almost 30 years. And Allie was actually beginning to struggle with pretty debilitating symptoms of multiple sclerosis, a diagnosis that she received. Her and her family were to the point in her care where they were considering the possible need to move homes to have a more accessible apartment for her to live in. That's how much her physical body was beginning to deteriorate. So Allie met my work on self-betrayal, really resonated, identified the million times of her life she didn't show up for herself in her self-care habits, in her relationship. The list for her was really endless. And she met this concept where I talk about creating a habit of making and keeping a small daily promise. Because self-betrayal exists because humans, we don't actually want to change. We get really wired and stuck in our familiar patterns because according to our subconscious, the familiar is safer than the unknown, than doing something new. So anytime we try to change, we meet resistance. The endless thoughts, all of the reasons why not to change, this won't work this time, or we just feel uncomfortable, more reason to go back into those familiar ruts and patterns. So anticipating that change will be hard, that those of us who are suffering from self-betrayal, as we begin to create new intentions, it will be difficult to keep those promises. Allie began her journey and she set a small daily promise. Each and every morning, she set an intention to drink one glass of water. It doesn't really matter what the intention is. So anyone listening, if drinking a glass of water resonates for your first small daily promise, great. For others, it might be, you know, a minute of journaling, a deep belly breath, flossing, it doesn't matter the promise. What's important is rebuilding that alignment where you begin to now show yourself and witness living the experience of setting an intention and keeping the promise. And the more consistently you do that, knowing that in the beginning, you're not going to do it every day. There will become some days where you don't keep that promise. So when you show that alignment more consistently than not, you begin to re-empower yourself. Your subconscious no longer rolls its eyes when you say, no, I'm going to do this new thing and stick with it. You begin to empower yourself toward creating change. So I talk about Allie a lot. She's now well into her healing journey. Not only is she no longer debilitated by symptoms of MS, she's created an entire life for herself in many ways. So definitely go over and follow the rest of Allie's journey on Instagram, though know that again, Allie is such an incredible story of change that begins with a small daily promise that I believe is possible for each and every one of you listening out there today. 
And what I found most interesting about Ali's story is how from that glass of water, which is so easy to do, right? She then habit stacked journaling on top of that. So she understood, learned the process of journaling. She had the daily habit of water, drinking a glass of water in the morning. That became her daily habit. She habit stacked to use a James Clear's word, journaling on that. And then journaling became a habit in her life. Yes. Journaling actually too. I'm happy you brought that up, Vishen, because I developed as not being a journaler myself in life. I've never taken to journaling as I know many do. I created a practice of what I call future self journaling. And essentially it's just that it's free templates. They're available on my website. You're a holistic psychologist. Anyone who signs up for my email list will get them right to their inbox. And essentially what it is, it's a practice of every day setting that intention, creating a small daily promise, using journal prompts to A, remind yourself, because we all have that autopilot that we slip into the second our eyes open, if we're not conscious, at least setting an intention to do something different. The practice of future self-journaling, the templates that I created actually harness a little bit of the power of neuroplasticity, where I suggest we write as if the promise is already kept for ourselves. Now we're laying down some new neural networks. Now we're firing and wiring some actual new cells in my mind. I'm practicing so that by the time my day comes, when I do want to keep that new promise, I've set myself up to succeed because journaling is not a magic journal, though it can set us up as a tool. And I love that concept of habit stacking because I did just that. I use, and I still use to this day, my future self-journaling templates as my first foundation of my habit. Once I created the habit of journaling, now I do stack habits. Each and every day I create one new habit, right? That I keep for a foreseeable amount of time until that is integrated. And then I create a new habit right on top of it through journaling. I'm curious about that. You create a new habit each and every day? I journal each and every day. I create the habit until it integrates. And then once that's now integrated, right? The journaling has always been there as a habit. Now I can use another, right? Tool or promise within my journaling template. So I'm already journaling and I've already now integrated one habit. Now I can integrate another habit. So for me, journaling is the platform, I guess we can call it, that allows me to stack all of these beautiful lifestyle habits. There's a really powerful lesson here for everyone. Start with something really simple. If you are having a hard time keeping commitments to yourself, start with something really simple, like drinking a glass of water. Make that a habit because it's so easy to do. Just keep a glass of water by your bedside and start your day with a glass of water. And then as that becomes a habit, you can stack another habit onto it and stack another habit onto it. Now, interestingly enough, in the top 10 list of books on Amazon today, it's not just Nicole's book, but it's James Clear's book, Atomic Habits. And that's where habit stacking comes from. So it's so interesting to see that globally, there's such an interest in ideas like this, transformative ideas. So many people are asking, where can I get Nicole's journal templates from? Go to the website, yourholisticpsychologist.com, yourholisticpsychologist.com, and you can get it there. And if you guys are looking for a journaling tool, know that Mind Valley, I invented a digital journaling tool specifically for personal growth and insight-based journaling. It's called insights.mindvalley.com. It's completely free. Just go to insights.mindvalley.com. And all our members are connected there and you can journal privately or you can share your insights publicly and you can follow people and you can see other people's insights. In fact, if you go there, I bet you, you will see that people are writing insights on this conversation right now. So it's just insights.mindvalley.com. And it's growing really fast. So go check it out. Let's go on to the next question. So I was really excited about asking you this. You touch a little bit on concepts like breathwork or ayahuasca in the book. I'm curious to know your thoughts on how 
these types of altered state approaches can help us recognize and heal our patterns. Yeah. So I want to, let me mention, I guess, two different types of breath work. And the first type of breath work that I talk about is breath awareness and intentionality around our breathing, the reality that our body is breathing life through itself each and every day. And our breath can be a marker for many of us of the state of activation of our nervous system. I talk a lot about our physiology, building it around our nervous system, which is a very major player in how our body works because it does direct a lot of our body sensations and a lot of our body reactions, oftentimes outside of our awareness. And the reason why many of us are stuck, to go back to that word that we've revisited earlier, and what's stored in the subconscious of many of us are patternings around activations in our nervous system, meaning a lot of us really simply are stuck in some state of fight, flight, or freeze. And we are cycling through that. We never kind of return back to a baseline. So the breath, first and foremost, becoming aware of what is the natural rhythm of the breath. And listeners out there might be like, well, what do you mean? You just said your body's breathing and you don't really get a choice. While that's true, we can identify whether or not we're in a state of stress based on whether or not we notice that we're breathing in a very shallow, maybe even holding our breath, as I know I do when I'm stressed. I either hold my breath or some of us have a very just shallow way of generally breathing. So if listeners were to put a hand on their chest and put a hand on their belly right now, and for some of us, it might be very faint, just notice, simply witness what's moving, what hand is moving. A lot of us probably identify that it's our chest, that we might have a very shallow, faint breath from our chest area. And if we are identifying that in our bodies, chances are we might be in a state of nervous system activation because that shallow based breathing is a marker that we're in some state of stress, of course. So becoming aware for some of us might be our first reconnection with this body of ours. Oh, wow. I didn't realize I was such a shallow breather. And if you come to that awareness, as I know I did, Living again, all of this connects together in an overstressed family system with limited resources. I did get stuck in fight or flight. Again, I'm very much simplifying this. My autopilot was very much driven by fight or flight. When I became consciously aware of my body, I noticed I did those two things I mentioned. I either held my breath quite often or I was always breathing very shallowly. So for me, becoming intentional, teaching my body how to breathe from that deeper belly or diaphragmic space actually allowed my body to rebalance itself down in the nervous system level. So that's a practical breath work that I'm always talking about that is aimed at rebalancing a dysregulated nervous system. Then of course, there's the more activating type breath works that you're, I think, referencing when you ask about ayahuasca that shift our full state of consciousness. Though nervous system work is a shift of consciousness coming from an activated survival-based mode of consciousness that so many of us are living in when we're in that fight or flight mode into that more calm, receptive mode of consciousness that allows for a connection with life and the world around us. Though, of course, there's different, more aggressive type of breathwork practices that actually alter our state of consciousness that are similar to ayahuasca. My statement I make about both of these for some of us, incredibly helpful at connecting with a new state of consciousness, incredibly helpful and impactful for some of us, opening our awareness to a new way of being that we can begin to embody. However, in my opinion, limit it if we return right back, quote unquote, home to our subconscious autopilot. If we have a transformative weekend or hour breathwork practice with a practitioner and we come right back home 
before long, many of us slip right back into those habits and patterns. So the question, like we've been talking about this whole conversation is how do I allow this one moment of transformation, this incredibly impactful breathwork practice to shift into my embodied lifestyle? So is there a practice that you found to be surprisingly powerful? Maybe something that isn't getting the type of attention it deserves, but is surprisingly powerful and we should be looking into it. Breathwork. The simple, consistent daily so, awareness. For me, Vision, it changed my life because so, I was activated all the time from my fight or flight. Nicole, you know what's so exciting about that? Literally two hours ago, we just selected and finally closed our official breathwork teacher for Mind Valley. And so this particular teacher, and it literally happened two hours ago. Love it. <laughs> using a 21-day breathwork program, and it's going to be launched to our entire community in the next eight months or so. So I'm so excited that you mentioned breathwork. What a beautiful coincidence. I love synchronicities like that. So at this point, I want to bring on some audience questions. So I'm going to call out the three people. I want to make sure that you guys have your webcam ready and your mic ready. Barbara Zelnick has a beautiful question. I'm going to call up Barbara first. A beautiful question on when does the work ever stop, okay? Then the second question is going to be from Julia. Her question is on relationship patterns. And then we're going to go to a question from Prane. So Barbara, Julia, Prane, be prepared. And Prane's question is on letting go of shadows, okay? So let's get started, Nicole. Guests typically love this portion of our podcast because it's so exciting to see your fans here. I love it. They are so excited about interacting with you. So Barbara, you are now a panelist. And for those of you who I'm going to bring up, all of you have a full rights to snip out this piece of the interview and share it on your Instagram, okay? Nicole, is that okay with you? Yes, please. This thrills Great. me to know so and I love interacting. You're going to play interviewer today. I'm going to turn off my camera, but I'm right here listening. Go ahead, Barbara. Hi, Barbara. Hi, Nicole. Hi. I got connected to you through Instagram, through a friend of mine in LA and got your book already. I've been in personal growth for a long time and you answered my question, but I'm a little bit frustrated as I go through the work that I've been going through forever. I mean, I had John Bradshaw's book. I've done attachment work. I became a therapist for heaven's sakes. I'm a licensed therapist in California. It takes 3,000 hours to get there. So <laughs> I've been over the territory. But what I'm hearing today is wonderful. You know, I need to be breathing. I'm taking a wild fit quest and learning to feed myself, which is brand new. Brand new. Yeah, so, for a lot yes. of us, it's, it's the daily Especially if you're in the field like we are, you know, even being our professions, I think a lot about this can be our distractions, can be our mode, the familiar that we're comfortable with that allow us to stay distracted from maybe the more fullness of us. And learning how to be conscious to ourselves in each and every moment is how we integrate and embody the work. And it's often, that's why I answer the question, Barbara. When Vishen asked me the, what new practice is it? And it isn't, it's the simple. It's the things that I think we all love to hate, right? It's when I, probably people want to bash my head and when I'm like, it, it really is learning how to be simple, learning how to just be. For so many right. of us, especially if you are a doer, I mean, 3,000 hours, I know how long that is, right? Well, Some of us get so stuck too. in doing. Yeah, yeah. Right. I mean, I say that because I think a lot of us get stuck in a doing mode. And learning how to embody being that just conscious presence is the most simplistic, though difficult work, I think, for a lot of us. Especially for anybody who's drawn to healing practices yes. and to being available and present to others. 
where I could teach someone to breathe, but not necessarily always look at how I wasn't breathing. You. <laughs> you um, no, no, I'm good. I'm yeah. good. How are you today? And there's so much shame around that. There's such a deep well of shame. I went back to erase my question. Barbara, I want to I phrase your question because it was this particular phrasing that got so many votes from the audience. So I want to make sure that we acknowledge the fact that so many people gave a thumbs up to this particular phrasing. And the phrasing is this, great book. I've been doing the work for 40 years. Does it ever end? That's what I want to know. Yeah. Yes. So I, I think about ending a lot and I, I, like Barbara, I've been searching, I call it my utopian hippie hammock. So I'm always, you know, anyone found that, please let me know the geo pin of where this is. I don't think it exists. And it's okay that it doesn't. Because what I've also learned is that we're evolving creatures. We are expanding energy. We are not a consistent being. So this concept of ending, right, is possibly not always going to be in attunement with our ever-changing nature. If I came up with the script that works for me now, I'm 38 years old. I always share this. I don't know what 58 is going to feel like, my ever-changing needs, 78. Hopefully I get up even more than that in years. We don't know. So what my purpose of the work and any healing work is finding that empowerment within, learning how to walk forward through the uncertainty of life and learning how to navigate that. And the only tool that I find helps us to do that is learning how to live consciously so that I can tune into my ever-changing needs and meet them. I want to just say that I've had a really powerful spiritual practice for my entire life, my early 20s on. And what I'm embracing now is the aspect of spiritual bypass and how embodiment is what's Mm -hmm. coming into my life now and Mm -hmm. the relationship to what I eat, how much Mm -hmm. water did I have today, and the very, very simple practice of breathing. So thank you very much, Nicole. Really great book, great framework. And thank you. Namaste. I'm so happy you're resonating, Barbara. Thank you for stepping up, Barbara. So I'm now going to bring up Julia. Julia's question is on relationships. Julia, try to phrase the question exactly as you wrote it, because that is the phrasing that is getting votes. Okay. Julia, you're now a panelist. Hello, Nicole and Vision. Greetings from Finland, by the way. Yes. So my question, how do I change the same relationship pattern? I acknowledge consciously that I attract similar kind of types of people. So basically, I'm achiever and I attract carer men. So is this good pattern or should I change it? And the most important question, how? (laughs) Thank you. I think it's a very common one. I see why this got so many votes. We're interpersonal creatures, Julia, which means that relationships are incredibly important for us, for how we feel about ourselves. The reality that most of us are living is we're stuck. Here's that word again in relational patterns, right, that were formed based on our earliest environments, based on the people that were around us, based on what relationships were even modeled to us. We come here, we don't really even know how to relate to other humans. So we're in a state of learning and we're also in relationships with the caregivers around us. So they become our earliest models. So chances are, right, what you're identifying, the role you're playing now, if you went back in time, this goes to anyone listening, probably see similar patterning, right? You might've started as the overachiever, as I know I did in my family. I then became the overachiever with my friends, never wanting to disappoint everyone in the world around me. So some of us are caretakers, right? We see similar patterning. So what that translates to is we do seek similar partners. Why? Because we're gravitating toward that familiar. We're familiar with how to show up in this relationship. 
for some of us, this is what feels quote unquote, like love or like connection because it's what we're familiar with. So to answer your question directly, it's not good or bad. It is. If anyone out there listening identifies the patterning, the type of person you always are in relationships, and perhaps the type of person you always pick in relationships, even if you have very well-meaning friends around you saying, no, this is not the type of relationship you want to be in, right? Kind of waving from the sidelines with the quote unquote red flag, right? Accepting your pattern as an adaptation, as something you need it to do, as a role you need it to embody to keep those connections earlier in life. So we can throw away right, good, bad designations. It's just what is. It was your best attempt at coping likely with something that was quite difficult for all of us in an earlier time. So in adulthood, however, we can gift ourselves with choice. Now you can decide, Julia, whether or not this pattern is working for you. And in the instances where it's not, where it's not maybe fully honoring yourself or your now needs as they are into your adulthood, now you can create choice, right? To do so, we have to do the work because you're going to always be gravitated to that same familiar person. So very Mm -hmm. consciously, we need to start to make new choices. We actually have to change how we're relating in relationships to create change. So first and foremost, no judgment here. Any of us stuck in relational patterns, knowing that you're stuck because that was your best attempt at coping with things that were hard in childhood. And now, right, you can gift yourself if you should choose to change with choice. Okay. Thank you so much. Thank you, Julia. And it's nice to meet. I think you're the first person we've brought on from Finland. We have so many people in Estonia. First person we've brought on live from Finland. Yeah, we are almost neighbors. Exactly. Exactly. Come visit the Estonia tribe sometime. Thank you for joining us, Julie. I'm going to make you an attendee again. And I'm now going to bring up Prane. Okay. Prane may have had to leave the call early. That sometimes happens. No issue. So I'm going to ask Prane's question because it's a really interesting one. And that is simply when doing shadow work, once we find a pattern, what is the best way to let go of it? Love. This is actually a great extension of what we were just talking about with Julia. As we become aware, as we become conscious, right? A lot of us, what we're seeing is uncomfortable. So quite naturally, what most of us do is we sit in judgment of our shadow, of parts of ourself that are shameful or of of these patterns that we've been talking about that no longer serve us. We become shameful, we judge, we criticize ourselves. So part of the job, the work, it's two-step, of course, as most things are. Like I just offered, there's always a reason right? There's a reason our habits and patterns once served us. Usually it's a protective reason, a safety-based reason, again, all connected to our nervous system and to keeping us safe as, as safe and as secure in the world as we can. So for some of us, that can be healing of itself, right? Allowing in now this new awareness that there was something deeper at play, that we're patterned in this way out of protection, that can relieve some of the judgment that we usually experience when we're talking about shadow work or seeing right these habits and patterns clearly. So for some of us, just simply knowing why we are the way we are is enough to allow in compassion, acceptance, healing. Mm. For others, that's not the whole story, right? Acceptance and compassion and therefore healing, as we, I think, are all coming to become aware of, is a practice too. That means allowing in the darker stuff, the reality that we've been repressing or hiding, the feelings that maybe we've been taught were unacceptable, 
allowing ourselves to embody that our shadow is the action plan of it. So for some of us, it's just allowing in the compassion, understanding that it's not because we're broken, that we're acting or we're coping in the way that we are. It's because it was our best adaptation at any time. And for those of us that that doesn't feel relieving enough, many of us then need to take that action step learning how to be in our shadow, learning how to, for many of us, allow those darker feelings out that so many of us were shamed around or just allowing us to be who we are without that shame that so many of us have been operating. And that's a practice, showing those parts of ourselves, right? even when and it's uncomfortable. This is really interesting that you said that, accepting, right? Accepting and forgiving. I was doing a meta-analysis of all the different meditation techniques for shadow removal to develop a technique that I could bring to the Mind Valley audience. And one of the things that I found, and guys, you will get this technique before the end of the year. There's going to be a program on it. But one of the things that I found is that one of the most powerful things is when you recognize the shadow, you appreciate it. You appreciate it for it coming in at the time it did because it came in in some way maybe to protect you, to keep you safe. You appreciate it, you love it, you forgive it, and then you work on clearing it. And so I'm so happy that you said that. Yeah. And that's an action, right? It's a doing. And again, this is why I speak holistically, why I titled the book, How to Do the Work. This is, again, yet another one of those moments where just thinking it, a thought, you know, I could say this till I'm blue in the face and you could hear till I'm blue in the face. I see a lot of comments, right? Like, oh, I get it differently now, right? How do I do it differently? How do I give myself where I believe wisdom comes from a new lived experience, and that's where, you know, it becomes a practice that we have to embody. That's why meditations, I mean, just the, the resources, I, I've been such a fan of you and Mind Bally ever since I saw it come into fruition. But this is why these are important, the practices of it. How do I translate these concepts into now a lived action? How do I teach others a new way of being so that they can then teach themselves and their bodies a new way of being in the world? Because in my opinion, that's how transformation happens. We have to actually create change for so many of us down into our body's experience of this mm -hmm. life. So Nicole, as we come to the final 10 minutes, I'd love for you to teach us some technique that we can apply in our life. And Bikram Jit Chowdhury, who's in our audience today, asked a really interesting question. How do you journal? How do you make journaling a habit? I mean, how do you do this on a daily basis? I would love for you to share with us how anyone here who's interested could start this one simple habit of journaling. So journaling, any habit, I use this suggestion too when I talk about building a consciousness habit that we were talking about earlier. So I know, put it this way, how strong our autopilot is. If you listening out there are not someone who journals in your day, or perhaps you're not someone who's consciously present in your day, chances are tomorrow, even after you've listened to this talk, you're probably not going to wake up and journal or become conscious. You're going to be victim to the subconscious autopilot that's always there. So why I say that is we can all use help, an outside accountability partner, having the friend who reminds us and or we all walk around with technology in our pockets or our bags, right? Setting an alarm on your phone, right? Having something to snap us out of that autopilot that is ever present is our best attempt at creating change. So for journaling, if we want to use that as the example, if you're not someone who journals, right? Set an intention for somewhere in your day. For me, I found mornings are best because that's 
if I show up, that's the time I can protect time. I can say, I'm not going to pick up my phone until later in the morning and I can give myself some hours. Mornings aren't for everyone. So pick a time in your day and set an alarm in your phone, right? And when that alarm goes off, that will be your mental reminder. It'll be your pattern reset, shifting you out of your autopilot, whatever else you were doing in that moment. You can now create the opportunity to make a new choice, to pick up that journal, to do something new. And this suggestion goes for any new habit we want to create. Many of us need that help with that first step. We need that reminder. We need that phone alarm and or that friend or something else. When, if you are involved in the community like Mind Valley or Self Healers or the Circle, my learning platform, right? Having that external reminder for many of us is the biggest battle. Learning to do something new means reminding ourselves to do something new. So use the help, use the tools, create the reminder for yourself so that you can create a new choice for yourself in that moment. Amazing. Thank you so much, Nicole. I'm going to take one more question from the audience and then we'll wrap up. And again, for those of you who are listening, the book that we're talking about is How to Do the Work. Recognize your patterns, heal from your past and create yourself. This book is currently number six on Amazon this week. And I mean, number six across all books in the world. Nicole, congrats. You even overtook Barack Obama's book. Look at you go. Wild. That's amazing. (laughs) Barack Obama is only at number nine. So (laughs) you're doing amazingly, amazingly, amazingly well. You can learn more about Nicole by following her on her website, which is called yourholisticpsychologist.com. And there's so many different tools and there's so much information there. Go check it out. It's an incredible website. Gorgeous. Now let's go on to the next question. This one is kind of interesting. I'm curious to know your thoughts on it. It's from Adrian Charles. Adrian, I'm going to bring you live so you can ask this question. It's on healing generational trauma. Hi, how are you? Hello, Adrian. Thank you. you. I'm a physician and a life coach. And in just being Black in America, Black Lives Matter, what we've been dealing with, what's going on in Indian country with the Native Americans. I was interested in how your work or doing the work helps a group of people. So the trauma of the enslaved, even the first Europeans that came here were prisoners and they had their own generational trauma that they unleashed on others. So I would be interested and how this would apply to a group. Absolutely. And and thank you for for asking that, Adrienne. I talk in my book about how trauma does get translated. And I say in blood and bones, like I was speaking about using my lived example of stress in my mother's in utero, if you will, talking about the stress of slavery is incredible. And it does imprint and impact generations beyond. I mean, they're, you know, coming through into the cells, into living, talk about overstressed nervous systems, living in communities where safety isn't really felt to this day. So healing is so incredibly important, learning how to create and cultivate safety. I go back and forth to that word time and time again, learning how to create safety in individual bodies like yourselves who are living in states of dysregulation, and then more so creating safety in our communities where safe individuals coming together, banding together, creates safety in our world. And until that happens, we are traumatized humans hurting and harming other humans. 
So healing, like I feel, has to go down to the core, has to go down for many of us through the generations, through the dysregulations, through the lack of safety that is still permeating the world, if we're honest. Right. So is there a practical way to do that? I mean, just buy the book for every Black person, every Native American. I mean, how? Right, right. Yeah. Well, I mean, my hope is inspiring, you know, single humans out there to begin to create the changes in their world to then like you self are out there going and doing, creating changes in their communities. I believe it becomes a domino effect that we can create in the macro. Of course, my hope is that structural change happens, you know, that we're also working to breaking down these paradigms and these policies, building up new ones, using, you know, the new tools and resources that we have. One of the major ways I think that social media can be of value is through accessibility, connecting people to tools, to resources, to perhaps safer individuals that we can begin to cultivate safer relationships with. So there's a lot of puzzle pieces, I think, that need to start to come together in a new direction. Though I think, you know, gradually with us all beginning to A, become aware of the great need for change and B, to begin to distribute these resources, we can begin to walk in that direction together. And I think that's the only way that we get there is beginning to work together as opposed to separate it as we've been for so long. I appreciate that. With regard to epigenetics, I met a physician who is also a scientist. His name is Bruce Lipton. And he was, you're nodding, yes. So he was one of the first guys who did studied epigenetics. Mm -hmm. And I actually went to a Louise Hay conference decades ago, and he gave a talk there. And he showed a video of a baby in utero and the mother and father were arguing and you could actually see the baby shrinking and responding. And he talked about how the cortisol then enters the baby and that stress hormone, you know, becomes part of the baby's genetics. And it was just fascinating. Fascinating. Absolutely. Stress is debilitating to the human system. So those, especially individuals living in racist environments as they still are, are living in chronic unending stress, which just continues the physical and emotional fallout. Yeah. Thank you for answering my question. Thank you. Of course. Thank you. And thank you for the work you're doing in the world. Thank you. And I joined the coaching program. Oh, that's fantastic, Adrian. That's fantastic. Thank you so much for your question. Thank you, Adrian. Nicole, thank you so much for being with us today. It's been such an intriguing conversation. What I love about your book is that it covers so many different areas and then it brings them together. But it reminds us of this continuous journey that we are on to become our best selves and to be fully conscious, in your words, of everything happening in our life. And I love the humility with which you write it. I mean, given like just how massive you've got and I love how humble you are. So thank you so much for being our guest on this podcast today. I'm encouraging everyone to check out your work. And I think the 600 plus people that joined us today, they had an incredible time. So uh, thank you, everyone. Thank you, Nicole. Nicole, I hopefully will we'll see you again. I definitely want to speak to you about becoming a teacher on Mind Valley. I can see so many ways we can collaborate. Lakiani, and this is the Mind Valley Podcast.
If you like the Mind Valley podcast, take the next step. Become a Mind Valley member. Imagine being coached daily by the greatest teachers on the planet. How quickly would you transform your health, your mindset, your body, your relationships? How quickly would you double the size of your company? How quickly would you see your career grow? How quickly would you eliminate any limiting belief that's holding you back and manifest a life that you once thought beyond your dreams? When you become a member, you don't just get access to the greatest education in the world. You become part of a community of 150,000 of the most incredible people dedicated to personal growth. Go to mindvalley.com forward slash now to get started.